1: at your local auto parts store, or visit
0: SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You! Can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the Whitetail Woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light go farther, stay longer. And now your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt
1: podcast. This week on the show, I'm joined by Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions to discuss strategies for late season success for both private and public land. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and their Camo for Conservation Initiative. If you're not familiar, it's pretty darn cool. A portion of every sale of First Light's Spectre Whitetail Camo is given to the National Deer Association to help with their mission to do good things for deer and deer hunting, which uh, I'm awfully thankful for. So all that said, today's episode is all about the late season, and it can be a great season if you have the right plan in place, and if you're willing to do the work, push through the cold temps, the long, well, not so long days, but a long season getting you up to that point. And my guest today is a good friend, a great hunter, and a wealth of information, Jeff Sturgis. He is the founder of Whitetail Habitat Solutions. He's written multiple books. He has a tremendous YouTube channel. He just pumps out the videos there like I can't believe. And he brings an interesting perspective because I think a lot of people think of Jeff as a private land kind of habitat manager expert. And that is probably his, not probably, it definitely is the thing he does the very most. But he also spends a lot of time hunting on public land too. He has experience hunting different places that I think can be relatable to any kind of deer hunter out there. So what we're going to talk about today is how to have success in the late season. Yes, on managed pieces or yes, on private land with ag, whatever it might be, but also how to kill late season deer in the big woods, how to kill late season deer in areas where there's no management, where you're competing with other folks, all that kind of stuff. So I think this is going to be really valuable for a large number of you. I'm excited about it. I don't want to waste any more of your time. I think we should just get right into it. But first one thing, I just want to take a second here. To thank so many of you for reaching out, sending me messages and comments and emails and so many different notes of support and congratulations after uh, getting my shot at the wide nine last week, was uh, very very thankful to have had that opportunity to close the deal on that deer and end that hunt and you know get redemption after what happened in October. So very thankful for that and very thankful for all of your support along the way for you following the story over the years and uh, sticking with me through the uh, through the ups and the downs. So all that said let's kick off this month of December in style with a great conversation here with mr. Jeff Sturgis all right we are here now with one of my most frequent return guests on the podcast and one of my favorite guests on the show and a good friend Mr. Jeff. Sturgis welcome great back to, Jeff
2: yeah it's great to be here say frequent been over a long period of time
1: yeah I mean I, I think you were one of my first 10 guests like I think you're in the first maybe even the first four episodes mm-hmm. ever so that's, that's that's going back 10 years at least and I think we were you know working on some articles together and talking for a number of years before that too so it's oh, yeah. uh it's crazy how fast it all goes. Doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it was.
2: Well, it was back in the writing days, or we writing a whole bunch. Uh, yeah, I, I'd written up to 170, 80 articles in a year, and then when I'd watch those Google Google Analytics, I'd see a, a notice come through from Wired to Hunt that they yeah. something. I never knew what it meant, and then all of a sudden, I realized that you had this Wired to Hunt thing, and you'd share articles that I'd written during the week in your Fridays. Yeah. Friday post or whatever it was. Yeah. That's where that came from. And I, so I knew of the post going out before I think I even talked to you or met you at that time. So
1: yeah, pretty cool. It's funny how that, those things uh, bring folks together. I'm sure glad that I don't remember if, if you re- reached out to me or if I reached out to you, but I'm however it happened. I'm glad it happened. It
2: was um, it. it was yeah. over 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, all that said, thank you yeah. for, for making the time. I know you're coming oh, off of a trip and, busy with hunts and, and all that. So oh, the the thought I had for today, Jeff is to, is to cover a topic we have not covered yet in detail. You know, I know in the past we've talked a lot about habitat. We've talked a lot about some of your thoughts around predicting timing of deer activity. We've talked about patterning deer. Um, we've covered a lot of ground, but right. we've never done a full episode like this talking specifically about the late season. Sure, And Coming into December here, I thought this would be a perfect time to do that. So my first, my first question for you, Jeff, is about how you feel at this time of year. So (laughs) bear with me on this when I explain what I'm thinking here. Sometimes, some years, when I get to December, I start to get like antsy and nervous. If I've got a bunch of tags still in my pocket. I'll wake up in the morning just sweating. like it'll just be like a little bit uneasy. How do you feel if you get to this time of year and you've got unfilled tags? are you are you starting to get worried that we're nearing the end or do you still have a lot of confidence?
2: I'm sure that uneasiness for you has gone away over the last couple of days.
1: Yes, things are feeling better now
2: <laughs> and I think I think that depends. i I've, I've had a few uh 2010 2020 were both bad years for different reasons and uh misses uh wounded an animal um just it was it was a grind and it really gets to this time of year most of the time it's enjoyable it's relaxing um i love going out jen's going out tonight she's going to watch a uh, food source and i went out last night and it's more you're know, not getting up at four and driving 50 minutes to Wisconsin to go sit in a rut stand after walking 40 minutes up the hill to get into a blind and stand yeah. it's um and sitting in a tree stand and having it be 18 degrees. So there is such a contrast. Uh, and I think it, it does boil down to tags and it's not and you know, you and I hunt similar in some ways, as far as like you shot your target buck and you had that, that buck in mind, and, uh, I had a buck last year, bow that I was after here in Minnesota and I shot some nice bucks already, but it was, um, I, I hunted until the last day I could hunt them last year, but I still had that sense of satisfaction that I'd shot something. And so when you don't have tags, it's, it's more of a, it's not even, boy, I haven't shot something. It's more, um um when, when you when you have that pocket full of tags it's more like boy I just what could i have done different what decisions could i have made different um yeah. never worried about a, a dead animal it's more i just it's a quest and it's a journey um but when you have those tags so well, i shot my target buck in minnesota uh, my second one in wisconsin and then we just went to pennsylvania and shot a beautiful one on public land it's kind of like you know, you really can step back and enjoy this time of year. And it's more of a relaxing hunt to me. Um, it's more about numbers of sits, just when you can get out there and enjoy. Um, we sit in blinds more often this time of year, uh, watching food sources. Still get some, uh, the perfect rut stand, second rut morning sits. Um, and so, but it's more at a leisurely pace, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I, Such a contrast uh, from how you feel. I feel personally right now, I feel pretty good. I feel I can relax this this time of year and um, have some tags that have been filled and have had some great memories, too, with uh, family and friends. So it's a good time right now.
1: Now, now what do you think about just your chances to still have – not specifically like you this year, but, I mean, if someone's listening and they're going into December and they have an unfilled tag and they're thinking to themselves, you know, should I be – like is the best like what i'm getting at is is the best behind me when i get into december or do you look at december as some people call it dear december and things actually can be pretty darn good still moving forward well, um, how do you feel about that
2: i love the second rut especially where we're up here in the upper midwest where we can plan to, plan on some scrapes being opened up first part of december and some bucks really moving acting like they did during the middle of the rut um, also late season food sources I wrote some on the back on the board um, just to help me with my, my memory, but really um, when you're looking at clear cuts on public land and that diversity of habitat where highland meets low land, old forest meets young forest, there's a lot of opportunity for browsing deer during the daylight. And you look at bucks that have run ragged for three weeks straight. And then all of a sudden now they have to replenish that energy that's been lost. And so to me, there's a lot of opportunity this year. It's a lot different back in the late 80s, 90s, when I was hunting Thumb Area, Michigan. We're in 10 years during that time. There was uh, one year where I saw probably 25, 26 different bucks leading up to gun season. All those 10 years combined, I saw three antlered bucks after gun season through the end of the year. So lots of deer, lots of does. But we weren't in the areas that we had small little woodlots, an acre here, five acres here, 10 acres there, a corner of a field here. And all those bucks were back in high stem count areas, um, more remote locations. They'd been pounded by hunters. So it's cool about public land. You can go out and find those areas. You need to get away from where you'd normally hunt potentially for a rut. But then at the same time on uh, private land, if you have the right conditions, you can build it. So either one can – we have some of our best hunts – third day of gun season, fourth day, seventh day, ninth day, all the way out through uh, muzzleloader in the first part of December, some of our uh, best hunts have been during those times where we see a good number of deer and we still have an opportunity at what bucks are remaining. So I'm I'm full of hope when we get into this time of year.
1: Yeah, You, you you make a lot of good points there. And something you mentioned, that being, you know, find this different kind of habitat on public land. Like you can still have late season success on public land where I think a lot of people assume it's a lot harder and assume, you know, the late season is kind of a private land food plot game. Sure. But you were just in Pennsylvania on public land and and killed a really nice buck in late November. It was that kind of a late season type setup in any kind of way? Or how did you pull that off? Because that feels kind of late to me.
2: It is. And that was shot quite a few bucks out there this time of year because it always opens up the used to open up the Monday after Thanksgiving. Now it's the uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving. If they, I was there in 2019 when it opened up the first Saturday ever, and then you had Sunday off, and then I shot my buck on Monday. Right. They couldn't, now they can hunt Sundays. But um, really there's a combination of things going on. For one, we're looking for people pressure and people hot zones and trying to get in the middle of uh, campgrounds, uh, boat access, along where we hunt a reservoir parking areas, uh, main trail systems. And then on. Then you're looking for, if it's big open woods, you might have a good hunt in the afternoon if they're coming up and hitting acorns, beech nuts, or cherry, depending on what they're hitting that time of year right now is acorns everywhere. Um, but we're looking for high stem count. And so it's not that the bucks are on the south-facing slope soaking up the warmth. It's the south-facing slopes in a national forest are the ones that have a higher vegetation level or stem count per acre. And so we're gravitating to stem count per acre and then trying to put yourself in position with a lot of funnels, saddles, benches, and points and draws that come together so that you can capture that big X of movement if anyone pushes a deer. So this this buck came in by himself. He just came cruising through. He was actually on an old scrape line. He wasn't working scrapes or anything. He was just coming through, and where he was going was – he, he was leading angling upwards and we have a, a broad hilltop that just has a lot of self-facing exposure with a lot of stem count. And it's it's not necessarily thick, it's thick for there, but it's higher stem count. So then he'd have browse during the daylight, during his bedding hours. And I he was at five after eight. It was shooting light around to se- around quarter after seven or seven. So I think he was just heading up to, to bed. He might have been pushed, you know, from a long ways away, but he was kind of just easing on through. It's kind of for a combination of things. And if it was different weather, I'd be looking for different conditions too. Or different habitat.
1: Yeah, so so then tell me that, I guess. So how would you shift things? to files. How would you shift that up if it was different weather? And then secondly, if you were hunting out there, public land, same kind of place out there in PA, but you were doing this three weeks later. Now it's not that first few days of gun season. Now we're talking like December, December would you approach it differently then
2: no I'd, I'd be hunting uh similar locations and the thing about out there we used to have a cabin with family that i'd go out there so we would actually literally cross-country ski back in this federal land and see where the tracks were all winter long um, hike in the off season so you got to have a good flavor of pretty good feel of where the deer were most of the year right now you're hunting more of that late season pattern the difference is if it's really snowy I would be down towards the bottoms where the hemlocks are. So the hemlock line meets the hardwood line. I would have been so if it was snowing this trip, we would have been down towards the bottoms. It was crunchy, cold, and dry. So we were hunting more of the top where there's more food sources. So a lot of times they'll be down the bottoms, more thermal protection, and then they'll go up to the tops to feed just in the afternoon. And so even going out this this season, I mean, right now, if it would have been snowy, we would have been um depending on how much snow we would have been either in transition areas or more towards the bottom to get closer to that hemlock line.
1: Okay. What about mornings for that kind of setup? I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, when you're hunting food sources in the late season, a lot of folks avoid the mornings. It's hard to get in or out. Um, but when you're hunting big woods like that, are you are you hunting mornings still just the same? Or how is, what does that look like in a late season public land no ag kind of situation
2: that the morning or daybreak, you know, outside of opening day of gun season, we were, we were there for the first two days. So we're going to be out there in the morning. And but outside of that, if I was just going out to hunt a random December, December 6th, if you can get into areas and it's pretty cool out in public land, it's so, it's so different on private because everything's concentrated. You know, you're looking at food sources, bedding areas, transition areas for all their daylight movement in a, hundred acre box or less or 200 acres or 40, whatever you have to work with. We're here We're it's thousands of acres. And so it's thousands of acres of open timber so that the bedding areas, the food sources are very scattered and the movements in between. What that means is if I want to go out, I wouldn't necessarily want to be in there right in a food source, right at daybreak or around there, because I look at like deer might be bedding nearby. You might spook them going in. The cold part of the day is in the morning. Are they feeding? Or are they in their beds to conserve energy? But boy, when it gets to 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and you're on a flat, an oak flat, where you've seen some indication of feeding. We even had bears feeding out there. We went through bear sign on the way in on opening day. Um, so the bears are feeding up on top. That would be an area that you could sneak in like 8, 9 o'clock and then sit for the rest of the day with the thought that you're coming in on a flat point. You're not expressing yourself over the sides and spooking deer that might be down in the hollow, you're getting the position and blowing your scent off to a non deer area, maybe further top up top or towards an open area waiting for deer that possibly might want to feed mid morning because they were bedded down at daybreak when it was super cold. So I like that. That approach. Okay. Mid morning. And that you might be the same the place st- you feed all day. You're you all day.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. You brought up the second rut a couple times. Um a question I've got a couple questions related to that but one thing that I've heard is that you will be more likely to see a second rut in places where there's a very healthy deer population and and healthy doe fawns that will come into maybe I'm maybe I'm getting this backwards. I guess answer me this before I go running right my mouth Do you see a second rut more often on your highly managed private lands or on public lands? Or is it about the same either way? Like, is that just as likely to happen on that public land PA hunt for you? Or is it eh, probably not?
2: We don't because, because we're only hunt. So in the 21 seasons I've hunted out there, I've averaged about two days of hunting. So I don't go back. I'm, I'm hunting for opening day, the second day. True. I think on 80% of those, uh, let's say 65 to 70% of those days, I shot my buck on opening day. So you're I'm not really hunting much past that. But it's um, yeah. It's I I know there's a second rut in those big public land areas, and so, and I think sometimes you look at it like maybe there's better sex ratios, but the bucks have to travel a lot far be, further between doe family groups. So you, to me, if there's not a lot of deer, you could almost say that little doe groups could be missed uh, for that first mm-hmm. rut. No different than if you have an unmanaged herd that's really out of balance, then you have some leftover does and fawns that bucks just couldn't take care of because they didn't have time. They, um, they, they came out of estrus and they're coming back in a month later. So I I don't know. I know like a Zoga up in the UP of Michigan. Um, he had told me, I think it was around 80% of the does are bred in that first primary rut, but then there's about 15% that are bred in that second rut. And that was kind of UP wide where they did their studies uh, based on fetuses in ultrasounds for does that they, I think it was over 2000 does. They ultrasounded along the side of the road over a 25 year period, whatever it was. It was yeah. a pretty good uh, amount of data. So, and we see it um, even where we have good sexual ratios around here for whatever reason uh, versus Wisconsin, where we have a little bit higher doe count there because of some neighborly things going up. Then we see second rot in both those places too. So I'm just trying to think of the different areas where I've hunted. We still yeah. see that, um, that second rot pretty prevalent. What's,
1: what's the window when you see that most often, like if you had to put a date window on it in your area, what would the date window be? And how, like, how long do you usually see that as something like you're going to go into hunt planning to key in on? Like, is this like a few day window? Is this a week? Is this two weeks? What are we talking in which you're actually thinking like the second rut is a legitimate part of my strategy and I'm hoping to plan for it?
2: It'd be about a week to 10 days. And that'd be uh, for us right around uh, right now where it's end of November, early December. And we're not seeing any... I We have what's kind of nice in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And and I know this is a luxury. I'm, I, I know this number might be off-putting to some people, but we have good partnerships with people in the industry and we have right now close to 60 cell cameras in Minnesota and Wisconsin on our properties on and, and if you looked at those they're they're spread out over less than 300 acres. So we have a lot of cell cameras out now and the majority of those are probably at 80% around mock scrapes. And so we get a really good view of what's going on with rutting activity and I can say it's almost non-existent right now. But I would guess um what is is it the 29th today or is it the 30th
1: yeah today's the 29th yep and then yeah
2: i would say it's wednesday by this weekend we'll start seeing uh, some activities picking up it'll probably peak 7th or 10th of december and then it'll go back downhill pretty quick but i was hunting bow season in wisconsin uh, maybe four years ago had one of my target bucks come through in early january just breaking brush, making scrapes, throwing snow all over the place, dirt on top of the snow. And he was following a, a doe, a small, uh, probably fond doe, and she curved wow. in front of me. He grunted, she spooked, and he ended up chasing her, and she came right by me. He didn't, but we see a lot of that even in that, that just a short window in the early January. It's all about that, that time where you just, to me, it's, see, during the middle of the rut, you know, a buck could be coming off a doe any day, and and another doe could be coming in. You might have to search for a while. It's a lot more random. But when you start at the beginning of the rut, it's like all the bucks are ready; they're just waiting for the does. You have one or two does come in. There can be some malicious fights sometimes between some older bucks. Then all of a sudden, a high percentage of does start coming in, and all these bucks are waiting. And to me, that's the time when they're on; they're all on does pretty quick. It's the way I view it, anyways. And that to me, if they're all on dose pretty quick and you have a large percentage coming in, then they miss some. And then you just fast forward 30 days and 28 days, whatever it is, and it's about that same time every year in December, and then you could do the same into January.
0: For all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your
0: local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
1: So when you get to that time period, first week or 10 days of December, are you hunting, like, if you're going to a hunt, is it always with the mindset, like, hey, this is a second rut type hunt, and I'm going to hunt a location to take advantage of that? Or do you look at your data from cameras to tell you whether or not there is rutting activity. And if there's not rutting activity, you hunt standard late season bed to food type pattern.
2: So if I was planning on uh, hunting, let's just throw it, you know, like next Tuesday morning because it's second rut, then I'm going to go in to some of my favorite morning rut funnel stands and go take a seat. And okay. yeah, if I have cell cam data to back it up or, I have open scrapes where I've walked in and to another stand and and seen there's open scrapes, then that might determine an area of the property I go to. But just taking a total guess, I would go in and hit my favorite rut stands in the morning and uh, and see what happens. And then it's different now because we have muzzleloader season. I like shooting deer with a bow. Um, I hunt with my bow during gun season at times, but um, I also enjoy sitting over a food source with muzzleloader looking for a bunch of does. And so this time of year, if I think it's second rut, I don't want to hunt some out-of-the-way spot where I think a buck might be feeding. Because it's near his bedding area, I want to go to the source of the bottom of the funnel where a lot of does are coming in to a food source. And it seems like when we start seeing that doe herd, meaning 7, 8, 10 does, they're out an hour before dark, then good things happen. There's you know, yeah. probably a buck moving around somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Which so... is we'd hunt with a bow during the rut. Cause we're not hunting those right. big open food sources with, uh, we have food sources. We can't hunt with a bow. Cause we, if we go in and hunt them, we're going to spook the deer. So you kind of yep. ruin the uh, bedding areas that go along with them, the property too. So.
1: so food that seems so much of what we do in the late season revolves around food. Right. Um, can you, can you tell me a little bit about the types of food sources that you like to key in on at this time of year? Um, whether that be, you know, how you plan like create food sources with that in mind, or just if you're hunting land that you don't necessarily have control over, how you might approach that?
2: So like, you know, even going back to Pennsylvania and that public land, I don't want to be out in the big open hardwoods unless I have some indication that there's still acorns and that's where they're feeding, you know, tore up ground, snow. I really want to be in the high stem count areas where you have lots of regeneration, lots of habitat coming in. Think upland cover if you can find it on public land. It's it's hard, but where you have shrubs, uh, bushes, briars, hardwood regen, maybe on the edge of a swamp. It's all coming together where there's a lot of different habitat groups coming in together. That means there are a lot of browse. And to me, as opposed to a wide open oak flat where deer have been pressured, hunters have been out to, they might feed there more at night. It's safe. It's social. Um, They can see predators for a long distance. I'd rather be tucked up against that high high stem count, uh, diversity in browse and browse on public land. And then when you go on to private, if you're managing your own property, you want to definitely have a lot of younger timber coming in and, and diversity of habitat. But then you're looking at either high volume greens like Brassica, if it's towards the North or corn beans that are standing late, um, if you can get that. Um, but And then adjacent to that same type of cover where you have really thick cover. So if I'm hunting in the morning, I want to be by that thick cover, high stem count. And then I might flip stands and go hunt a a more food source stand related uh, for the afternoon on private land. But on public land, that might be all in the same. It might be you're hunting on the edge of a very thick area that deer might transfer out of to go to an open food source like a big oak flat uh, during the afternoon.
1: If you had to rank order, late season food sources from like what your very best would be down the list. How would you do that? I, I, Cause I'm imagining like I've been in this situation where I've hunted ag country and I've got some green food plots and then there's a neighboring cornfield and then there's another field next to that that's beans. And then there's, you know, a, some cuttings on the neighbors and I know there's like some thick natural browse in there. And I'm trying to think where should I hunt tonight? And I've got all these different food sources to choose from and i'm trying to think okay what's going to be the absolute most attractive for this time of the year if you're in if you have the luxury of that situation how would you rank order what would potentially be most attractive and then as a follow up and i'm giving you I'm making this even more tricky but as a follow up would conditions change that order so like if i told you it was a 40 degree december day versus a 10 degree december day how would you reorder things as well
2: you know and- Kind of to back up just a little bit, you know, like you mentioned, it's you have all these available, what choice would you make, but a lot of times, especially if people are building it or planting it on on private land, you're not looking at what's the best you're looking at, what's the best that would be available, and so a lot of times someone could say, ten degrees, late December, standing beans, pretty hard to beat, forty degrees, late December standing beans, I'd probably I'd rather I'd rather shift to corn or or greens. Um but then at the same time, even beans, that 10 degrees late December, someone has to have either fences or a large amount of acreage of beans to make them last till that time. So I see people beat themselves like I love beans late like that. But if they're not there, then it doesn't really matter what your scale yeah. of one to ten would be. And then also, um, you have to look at what's the most unpressured. So let's say just someone could say, okay, mid-December hunt, let's just say December 12th, there's a little bit of the rut left last, you know, upper Midwest, upper third of the country, and you have a choice of a bean field and a corn field, but the bean field's been pressured and hunted heavily, then I'm going to go pick the corn. And you might even find there's a lot of does and fawns in the bean field because they can take a lot more hunting pressure, human pressure. I'd rather cheat over towards that corn or the brassica that deer are still coming to, and there's still does come into it, obviously. If does aren't going to it, why would a buck? I mean, he he wants to eat some good food too. But unpressured should be the first uh you know, the first requirement of a late season food source. And then and then you start looking at what's best. And You know, if it's 40 degrees, it seems like they really like greens if it's warmer. so if they have high volume greens, even if they have standing wheat or rye mixed with various greens, uh, clover down in Kentucky, West Virginia, southern Illinois, southern Indiana, where you might even get a little growth of clover in November because it hits 67 degrees a few days. And so that's a little bit different, too, versus something you might want to do in central Michigan or, or focus on. So heavy greens of some kind when it's a little warmer later, And then certainly those grains, but again, it has to be unpressured. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great point. And 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 your point about it all being relative to what's the best available at that time really
2: important to remember. If one thing, real quick, Mark, consider that a mature buck, mature buck, the home range of a mature buck probably has probably five times more than a doe family group. So always remember that 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 mature buck he's willing to travel a long ways to go find that unpressured food source. And so it can be very deceiving when you have a pile of does and fawns and young bucks and you're thinking, you know, everything's doing really well, but if you've over pressured your land, those are the deer that can take that pressure That mature buck might be a mile and a half, two miles away.
1: So on that point, it, it seems like there's a, a transition in where deer spend time to find that best available late season food. But, how does bedding change as we get into the late season in your view? How, how have you seen, and maybe buck betting in particular, have you found that they start betting closer to the food themselves or are they pushing farther back because now there's less cover and there's been more pressure and it's harder for them to feel safe?
2: I think it depends on the food source and how much pressure has been there. You know, it, eventually if they get pushed too far away, do they even relate to that food source on a daily basis? So I think they still want to keep that window that's comfortable and they want to conserve energy getting to it. It's not like they're bedding 10 yards away from the food source. Um, and then that depends on if it's big open hardwoods next to the food source. They might be 400 yards away just because that's how far they have to go back to where they feel comfortable because it's so open. Or if it's super thick and that upland cover, some conifer mixed in, some high stem count briars, they might be 150 yards back. And so it really depends on, on habitat right there and what I see something that's a lot different out here is where we have Hills. And you can say that, you know, half of all whitetail areas have some type of elevation change. Um, But you really notice those deer starting to not bet up on the tops and be exposed to the winds. And they'll bet on the North facing slope. If the high wind is coming from the South and it's 12 degrees, they have to get out of the wind. And so, um, they can't be on the windswept tops. We have a point I'm thinking in Wisconsin where we hunt, it's just beautiful. It's uh rimmed with some uh red cedar, and on that point, there's rubs all the time. You know, just a monster's up there in October, but he's not there in December, he's just totally exposed.
1: If if you were, and I don't know, maybe maybe you've had people like this, but if you're someone who wants to set up property or part of their property specifically for late season? Like, I don't know, maybe you own land in Iowa and you want to go there for their gun season or something or their muzzleloader season or whatever it might be. There's certain states like that. If you were going to set up a place, you know, particularly or specifically for a December hunt, how would you do that? Like, what would be your ideal design or way you would set up a food source with bedding to make it like extra special for a december late season hunt
2: you still want to have the same uh bedding cover you still want high stem count cover when deer are in their beds you know they're feeding five times in 24 hour periods so during their beds bedding hours that means twice every four or five hours sometime in the morning sometime in the early afternoon so they have to have that stem count they have to have food to eat and that browse and so That browse they enjoy in February is the same browse that they would enjoy in in October. So that aside, you still want food. So if it's private land, you want food that's available when deer start to look to their fall ranges. We talk about that fall shift sometime late September to late October. We want to have that food that captures them at that time. So at that time, I like greens, clover, rye, peas, brassicas, those combinations depending on what works best in your area. And then if you can have the space for the grains, especially corn, and then beans, um, then you'd want that for late season. The key is, though, I've heard people say, well, I just plant beans because I'm just looking at December. Well, then you didn't attract deer in September, October, November as much And if those deer aren't attracted to your land, why are they all of a sudden going to show up in December? And let's say they do all of a sudden show up in December, you're getting the leftovers. So I'd rather set my land up where I have deer attracted in September, October, November, and then they carry on in December. It's almost like October, November is more important than December because if you don't have those deer attracted to the land, why are they going to be there all of a sudden? I've even had people say, well, I'm going to plant this brassica crop over here on this one acre because it's an area I want to hunt during the late se- late season. But if they've established their fall residency and pattern somewhere else, why are they all of a sudden going to move over there a quarter mile and feed over in that location when that hasn't been a part of their fall pattern the entire season up to that point? That, so that like makes a, sense. You're trying to establish a pattern of use and it that takes more resources because you can't just say I want to plant those late season food source and just let them come eventually. You have to stage it so that there's pieces available. Cover's still the same. It's high stem count. You know, brows. They have to have that during the day, anyways. Either way, um, but you really want to establish that pattern.
1: Yeah, you mentioned with the grain. If you were going to get corner beans in there, you had to have enough space. What is that minimum size that you think you need to have to get a bean or cornfield to work and, and last to the late season?
2: give you some uh like parameters where so i've been to a half acre quarter acre bean field that was just getting pounded in january no fence, but it was next to an 80 acre bean field uh, literally right next door and so the deer didn't have any reason to hit it during the summer they had plenty of beans standing if the beans weren't picked until sometime mid to late october then they didn't even start coming over to that bean field probably till it got really cold end of November, December. So there's no reason for them to be there, but you plant that same bean field in a big wooded section with no ag, it probably doesn't make it to September. And so take like around here, for example, I'd want um, one to two acre bean fields times three or four spread out over two, 300 acres along with complementary food sources. And that's another thing, too. If you don't have the other food sources, then they're going to put an unfair amount of pressure on that bean or corn. Corn's the same thing. They're, they start to hit our corn pretty good um, here mid to late November, but it's, it's going to go pretty quick, too, when you consider all the other critters that are hitting it, too. So you have to have another complementary food source. And then what's on your neighbors? There's a big difference for how much food you need when you have either neighbors with, with food sources or food plots or ag land versus if you're in a wooded section, even with fewer deer, because then your food is it. It's only game in town. So you probably need two, three, four times more food in some of those big wooded areas versus uh, ag area where you have the complement and support of other food sources surrounding you. Yep. It's, it's, a, it's hard to give a, you can't really give a, because you have to know deer numbers, what your neighbors are doing, what if your property is the only property without a lot of pressure? So deer are spending more of an unfair amount of time overall on your property, which is a good thing uh, because you're doing well with it, but you're, you're going to go through more food at that point too. Mm-hmm.
1: Speaking of that, <laughs> pressure, pressure in the late season. So much I feel of late season is, is managing pressure, but then taking advantage of other people's pressure. Right. Cause at this point there's been all sorts of other hunters around and any deer that are still alive in December have been through the ringer. And, uh, you know, in my experience, their heads are on a swivel. They are jumpy mm-hmm. and they are gravitating to those places, those pockets where they've felt safe. Um, so I've always approached the late season maybe even more surgically than I approach other parts of the year, which I'm still pretty strategic with. But then when it comes to the late season, I feel like you've got to be just right about how often you go in, when you go in, where you go in, because you have fewer chances than at any other point to make a mistake. Uh, That's a long way of getting to scouting and figuring out like where to hunt, when to hunt, what's the pattern. How do you figure out these deer that you're after in December without them catching on to you? Is there anything you're doing differently with your cameras, with any form of Intel gathering that you're doing that allow you to have an informed hunt in December?
2: It's kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at the lowest hole in the bucket as far as you're taking out, you know, the top portions are the best food, the best cover. Like if you're looking at public land, the lowest hole in the bucket, you know, pressure. So I'm looking at the major parking areas and major trails and major campgrounds and major boat access points. And even if you throw in a beaver dam, you have to cross here and there. Well, you can look at it on paper and say, boy, by the late season, if there's any bucks left or mature bucks, they're going to be in this area because they've been pushed from all sides and whittled down into this spot. And so you can make an educated guess without even knowing the lay of the land or the property. Uh, public land, for example, we, I hadn't been out to that public land spot in four years um, in that entire area, but you can make an educated guess based on the people movements and where people are, their hot zones, or you can get into an area where you kind of have an area to yourself. And if that meets your habitat requirements of uh good stem count, diversity, and it's hidden, then you're going to have a reasonable expectation. There's going to be deer there, older bucks there, um, just because you're whittling it down to that, and you don't even know anything about the land other than what you see on an aerial photo. And then private land's different because if you set the table and you've left it alone, even if you have no cameras out and you have good food, good cover, there's a reasonable expectation that you go out there and, and have a really good hunt. And what's a little bit different during the late season when you're not talking bow is that we can watch our food sources right now and we can watch the same food source sometimes over and over again because we're not spooking deer when we get in and out because we're using a muzzle loader. So, shooting a deer at 195 yards, uh, 255 is another one that I've shot over the last four years with a muzzle odor, and those deer had no clue you're even there. And so, you can get and watch them over and over again. Where with a bow, I have to stay off those food sources and I have to hunt transitions. So, then you're being careful. You know, it's like during the rut, you can afford to get in next to a bedding area because what are the odds that he's there when you're going in in the morning? But if you go in during wintertime, not only is it crunchier, but they can see better, the leaves are off the tree. So I have to stay further away from those bedding areas and get more into transition areas between food and bedding with a bow um, or on a small uh, food source on the way to a big food source, something like that. But you're almost looking at like, okay, deer are going to go through this funnel but they're probably not there, and I'm staying away from the food and the bedding. I'm getting in between that barbell of movement so that uh, I'm not spooking out either. Because, like you said, once you spook them out late season, they're just going somewhere else. Even if it's just that older buck you're after, he's going somewhere else.
0: For all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of
1: gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit
0: SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code Eater.
1: So when you're hunting late season on your, on your land, are you not chasing a pattern, not trying to really dial in a specific spot, in a specific but you're more so like, hey, I'm going to volume hunt a food source that I know checks off the boxes he needs, and I'm going to do it enough times because I can do it from afar. And he won't know.
2: I'm looking at more. It's different on private land. Cause we get to know what bucks are in which area. And so if I go out to our 77 acre parcel, it's all connected, but the 77 acres then I'm going ex, I'm expecting to see Isaac, uh, Barry, um, Isaac and Barry would be two. I'm expecting to see junior, but he's not one we're after this year. Um, Isaac and Barry would be the two ones over there. So then I'm hunting Isaac and Barry Barry movement on that area. And I'm using my morning stands as if I would during the second rut, as if I would during the rut, going in with the expectations. I might see Isaac or Barry and I'm letting the wind determine which stand that I go to. And so I'm looking at like, they should be there for these reasons. Either I have a trail cam photo with them, scrapes are opened up. Even without trail cameras, you know that there's big track scrapes. There's no new rub. There's some shavings on top of the, on top of the snow. And then you're going in there thinking I'm hunting this buck, but I'm, I'm hunting. I'm still chipping around. I'm not, I'm not uh, spooking out the food sources. I'm hunting this bedding area in the morning, this bedding area or this movement based on the wind and my access. And I'm trying to chip around a little bit and it'd be the same on public land. If I thought a buck was moving to this clear cut, from this knoll or swamp edge uh, in the distance, I might hit him from one side of the transition with one wind, and then I might circle around and hit him another side another day. I might get closer to the food or closer to the bedding. And so you're still hunting that certain buck, um, but you're you're using multiple stands or access routes to make sure that you're limiting your pressure in or out, and it's it's a similar uh, feature. It, the only difference is when you get to this time of year is that there's areas that are devoid of deer. Um, you just see that there's snow. There's no deer using this corner. There's no food. The cover's not good. There's neighboring pressure that's keeping the deer away from there. And they've, uh, where it could be a little bit more, you're, we have more stands available, let's put it that way, in early to mid November than we do early to mid December, just because I don't feel comfortable with some of the stands or confident.
1: Yeah. Is it is it true that yeah. sometimes you can have too many deer? At this time of year yeah. in that. So, so I'm imagining like the situations that I think a lot of people have where they're hunting land that they don't get to manipulate themselves. So you're hunting permission or lease or whatever in which there's ag and there's stuff out there, but it's not set up ideally for hunting, right? It's just big open cut cornfields or pick bean field or whatever. And there's a pile of deer out there and you want to hunt them. But then you're thinking, how the heck do I get out of here? How do I get in there
2: um, without these
1: deer catching on?
2: See, it's one thing if you're hunting with a muzzleloader, because then you can come into some, uh, you know, if you feel comfortable shooting out to 200 yards, then set up for 150, 175, and get off to the side in a a fence row. But um, a lot of people really push it. They see all those deer coming out into a certain corner. They feel they have to get in there with a bow and try it, Where I'd rather go sit all day and sit on the back side of that bedding area or in the bedding area with my wind blowing to a safe area, get in there very early in the morning and then just wait um, to see what happens. If I can get out at 11 or 12, because I don't see any deer and I have safe passages to get back the way I came and get out of there, that's fine. But I'd rather take my chances back in that thick area on an all-day hunt or um, at least sitting until late morning when I feel I can get out than going and playing around with all those does and young bucks and all those eyes, I'd rather get back in that buck's bedroom. And you're playing that, you're playing that game where it's a game of balance, where you look at it. Like, um, you know, I, I want to get in that movement, but I don't want to be so far in that I'm spooking the movement. And yeah. then the other thought is too, it was a buck that, uh, he used to watch a lot of hunting videos. And I want to say it was a Kiski outdoors one back in the day. And there's this buck that they had five or six years of sheds. And so this buck was eight years old. And all these deer were coming in, they had a muzzle odor into this big food source. And he just wasn't coming until an hour or two after dark. Well, they ended up shooting him like seven, 800 yards away out of this little corner of the habitat where they thought he was bedding. They shot him right at dark as he was slipping through, not going to get to the food source for another hour or two. Wow. And they went back into that buck area where it was well behind all the does and young bucks and commotion where he had lived and felt safe. And I still look at it like, they're like a grumpy old man. They just like getting away from everything else. So if you think about that, either going in in the morning or where you would potentially slip in in the afternoon, you're not hunting the huge numbers of deer. You're hunting that buck that complements that movement of huge numbers of deer.
1: It just seems so incredibly risky to try to do that in the late season when there's so little cover on the trees now. The deer are so on pins and needles. It just seems like everything's loud in the woods in December. Sound carries forever. I, I, I'd be so worried to try to slip deep into the cover. H- how do you how do you deal with that? How do you account for that? Like, what needs to be done to make sure that those things I'm worried about don't ruin the hunt?
2: And that really depends on your terrain. You know, like around here, we're sneaking up on the backside of ridges a lot. So we're not cresting over a ridge and pronouncing ourselves all the way, even where we went in for Pennsylvania. We were very careful. There's a point I like going up. And we go up the point on the backside from where you expect to see deer on the other side of the point or in the draw. And then when we walk across the top, we're being very careful to walk right in the middle of the top. So that we're not projecting our sound and presence over the sides as far as possible. So we're staying on that flat. And then we're going in slow or avoiding breaking sticks. I like walking like when we're out in there, when you're starting to, the closer you get to your you're blind, or we were just sitting in chairs in the forest against a tree. But the closer you get to that point, you're almost stalking your your spot. And I like walking heel to toe to where you're setting your foot down in front before your back foot's even off the ground. So it's almost like a continuous just movement but we're being very careful in those cases where and then in some some cases it's kind of like if you if it's so loud that you can't get into a stand without spooking out a bedding area it's just that balance of knowing or not if it's risky i don't do it and so then i i'm looking at like if i think i can get into 100 yards away from where he's bedding because of the lay of the land because there's soft snow out because it's damp and the leaves are damp they're not crunchy then i'll uh I'll do that, but if I think I need to be 200 yards away from that spot, then I'll find that where I think I'm pretty sure if I go in I'm not spooking them out of there. And that's really the question you have to ask yourself is you're backing up to the point where you think you might not have a chance at them, but you know it's safe to go in. I'd rather do that, hunt them, get five or six sets out of that and hunt with the wind in the right location rather than going in one time and spooking it before your start your hunt even uh, begins so yeah I was trying to assess how, that balance
1: yeah how late into the year would you do that morning sit like you described pushing in there like that is that just during the second rut time period or would you keep trying that even like when we're beyond you know or any real chance of second rut? like would you do that in January I know you mentioned that once you saw that but
2: no we've seen that I've seen that a lot and I've seen it in early February on a. Uh, client property that was the latest I ever saw where literally there's fresh scrapes and peelings on top of the snow that was in a very high doe density area and so lots of deer but but um, I'm looking at when I think the scrapes are open I'm using my rutting tactics rut tactics for going in but then also there's also that tactic of a lot of deer when it's super cold will feed mid-morning because the warmth is starting to come up that's sunny Whereas if they're moving, it might be, let's say it's eight degrees at daybreak, but by 11 o'clock it's 21 and it's going to warm up to 32. Then they're going to move, to me, I find they move more mid-morning, late morning in that condition where it's a little bit warmer. They can feed and conserve energy at the same time. And uh, that can be ideal for going in even after daybreak uh, where you're letting the deer settle down. You're going in because you know they're not bedding in this open woods you know you can walk to this line of swamp where there's a lot of conifer, and you can get on the edge of that, or just poke in a little bit to a movement, or you're walking in on the backside of a ridge. You're walking across an open field where they're not at it daybreak, and you're getting into a funnel between woodlots, but you're utilizing that access, and then you're going down sitting mid morning and seeing what happens till early afternoon. And it might be a spot because of where they're moving in the evening that you're you're actually sitting there until dark, and you're going in at night. Uh, so. Uh, Definitely some ways to sneak in and still hunt the morning or all day that might even be favorable, more favorable than going in three hours before dark because they're starting to move and feed a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So what about this scenario? Imagine you have got permission on a mixed timber and ag property. Let's call it 100 acres to make it simple. And we'll say 50 of it is a harvested cornfield. 50 of it is mixed mature timber and swampy brushy stuff. So there's some bedding in there. And then there's a big open food source. And there's a bunch of deer that are coming in and feeding in that cornfield every night. You're bow hunting mid-December. And your only available access is through the field. So the only road access is from the field side. So all the cover is in the interior of the property. You can't get to that without crossing that field how would you would you do what you just described and hunt mornings but go in after daylight when the field is cleared and just poke into the cover then and then you know bail for the evening because you know you can't get out of it without spooking deer or would you try to hunt in the evenings and have some other way to get out of that thing knowing that you have to get across that cornfield somehow after dark like how, how would you do something like that because i know like i have places like that i know so many friends who hunt places like this where they just don't have a strong option to get out because there's these fields in the way of where they want to hunt and where they have to park what do you do
2: i definitely would wait till after daybreak uh, to go in make sure the field is cleared so i can at least get to the woods hopefully uh there's a thick area of the woods or some conifer maybe a little bit little bit of elevation change where I can get in and not spook the deer in the woods. And then I'm going to sit and blow my scent to one side of the field or the other, where I think there's, it's less likely the deer are going to be and push that balance of how close can I get to their movement in the afternoon evening. And then you at least get a fresh scent and, and you just have to hunt that way. And it's one of those things where if you spook deer getting out, um, even if you're cheating to the side of the field that you see has fewer deer and you spook a bunch of deer, then uh, it's the only way you can hunt, but I, I wouldn't, ruin my hunt by walking in before daybreak just for the thought that, well, I have to get in there an hour before daylight, um, and then be there when it wakes up. I'd rather at least get to my stand and have a reasonable chance that I haven't spooked deer for an afternoon hunt, than ruin it before it even gets daylight. And so, and then you are just hoping you can get out, um, after or hoping you shoot something actually. And then it doesn't matter if you get out.
1: Yeah. That's even better.
2: But, uh, but bottom line is I'd rather at least have one good hunt and then maybe you, you wait four or five days and go try it again. Um, because if you keep hitting it and spooking deer after dark, even if you have to get out, it's just, it's going to turn into a dud property pretty quick.
1: yeah What's your take on wheeled access? So using a e-bike or a golf cart or, or something like that to clear the field on your way out? Knowing that like, Hey, I'm going to bust a bunch of deer when I come out of here, but at least I'm doing it on a vehicle of some kind versus walking out on two feet.
2: Well, if I didn't have a choice, I'd rather take an electric vehicle out to spook deer. Um, if that was my, my only option, obviously I'm not going in there with the ATV in that condition because it's probably spooking out the woods before I even get off the ATV, but at least something electric, uh, would be. And we've, to be honest, we've done that out here a couple of times, but it does, it does affect the hunt, um, I even had uh, I have a neighbor out here that has one of the new Polaris EVs, and I didn't know he had one. And so when I was sitting nearby, I heard him go back go by at dark. I sit till the shooting light, you know, till end of shooting light where he got out a little bit early. But I heard him go by, and it sound. I I told Jen it sounded like a, it sounded to me like a golf cart with loose golf clubs driving by. I don't know what they had <laughs> in it. But you could hear, it was like a rattle and a whir, if that makes sense. And he went by yeah. probably 250 yards away across the open field. I didn't see him, but uh, it was it was fairly dark. And I'm not sure that would have been, you look at it like if he was walking, he would have been dead quiet. And if something was close, something would have had been close to spook it. But when he went by with that machine and that clicking and clanging, even though it was in the little whir, in that case, his machine um, it's, and I found out later it was that the new player CV, but, uh, it, it would have spooked deer 300 yards away. So it, it, I guess it depends on the machine. You know, a lot of those electric golf carts are pretty, just a, uh, hunterized golf cart with locking rear differential, knobby tires, you know, they can be, uh, pretty quiet. Yeah. Honestly, unless you have a bunch of loose golf clubs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Make sure to put those in the garage before you take off for the hunt. <laughs> yeah. Um, um,
2: we, we do that a lot. We use our bikes around here because we have top level access in Minnesota, and we have areas where it's an eight minute bike ride, a full wide open to get to uh, to get to a uh, uh, spot where we're even going to stage and put the bike before we walk in a couple hundred yards uh, to get to a spot.
1: Yep, and they they they're definitely more forgiving of that, right?
2: I would say they're more forgiving unless your sound from the machine is pushing across two or three hundred yards. So it's kind of like if it's, if it's a noisy, you have to be really careful. We even have like our quiet cats, we have fenders on them. And if you don't use the fender nut with rubber washer, they'll bounce up and down and vibrate. And I just can't stand it. Um, I was halfway across the field. We had fenders on. I almost stopped to cut the fender off because I didn't like that chatter going across. And what we did is we just zip tied them and just made it so they, but you really just have to be careful with that because some little noise that it's almost like have a friend stand a hundred yards away, 150 and just see if you know what they're back to you and see if they can hear you go by. And if they can, it's yeah. probably, you're probably, probably better off uh, uh, walking.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It's such a I interesting think. balancing
2: act. Well, you're I'm, just I'll, in anything you do, you're trying not to spook the deer. So it's like every decision you make, And it it is, it's kind of like we were looking over some of the ridges in Pennsylvania and it's it's just so, I say it all the time, it sounds kind of goofy, but would you look over that ridge down onto a bench that's a hundred yards away if a deer had a gun? And if you walked loudly across the top and you didn't care if you walked to a big tree and you just silhouetted yourself and looked down, you'd be dead. So think about walking across that top and looking over, or getting to a stand, where you're accessing through a field. Can you access through there without a deer knowing you're going by and shooting back if they had guns? Obviously, I probably wouldn't hunt if they had guns. But it'd take the be fun whole,
1: out. be a whole new ball of wax. That's for sure.
2: But anyways, yeah, it's it's always that balancing it's, act of uh, yeah.
1: Speaking of the balancing act, then. Uh, another one of the things and we we kind of danced around this a little bit but it seems like in the late season there's a lot of talk and a lot of thought around when to hunt like what are the right days to hunt and I know you're really big on picking these high you know high odds days you have you know contributed your your thoughts to the algorithm for mm-hmm. the uh, the hunt oh gosh I'm having a brain fart Jeff what's the app hunt, hunt cast hunt
2: yeah, hunt cast and hunt wise.
1: Hunt cast. Yep. Okay, yeah. So, so you've got that predictive algorithm you helped develop to pick the right days to hunt. Um, when it comes to the late season, are there any particular conditions, any particular variables that are more important at this time of year than any other? Like, what are the things you're really, really keying in on for a December or January hunt? Um, well, what are you looking for?
2: It seems like during the rut, you can have a 15 mile an hour wind, 20 mile an hour wind. that's something, something that's above moderate. You know, not extreme, like 35 mile an hour winds or 30, but you can have something that's moderate during the rut that doesn't have as much effect as when it's 15 degrees in December and you have that same wind. It seems wind because there's no rutting activity or very little, unless it's a second rut. They're just food source movements. Um, it really seems like wind can shut down movement uh, quite a bit. At the same time, I've been out in some super calm conditions where they just don't seem to move. It's so still, Um, and it doesn't seem like much is moving. So, you know, a little bit of wind seems like it's always good, but not not a lot of wind. I really like when there's – I can think of some really good wet snow times where we have wet snow coming down to the point where there's an inch or two of fluff on your body after an hour and a half of sitting in a stand boy, I've had some really good movement times during snow, and I don't, and I think deer are sometimes moving, it's like if it's snow and it's cold, they're moving to get out of the wind, they're moving on the lee side of the ridges, they're moving to more stands of conifer, and so I think sometimes when it's snowing, and obviously that's usually not happening in September and October for the most part, that, um, that really, I love hunting those snow conditions, and then I'm always being mindful too that if it's super cold out, like we had eight degrees this morning, 10 degrees, something like that. And we hardly had any movement on our cameras at daybreak. And then all of a sudden you see a little bit of movement mid morning. And then we'll see a lot if the conditions are decent, not too windy this afternoon. We'll see a lot more. We're at daybreak. You can count on if it's extreme cold, which might be 18 degrees and, you know, Northern Kentucky might be eight degrees here, whatever, but, um, they're, they're really not moving to conserve energy.
1: So, Speaking of that, I've heard some people say that they see a bump in activity on warm trends. Like a lot of us want to see the big cold front in the late season, right? I'm looking for that eight degrees and snow, but then I've heard other people mention like, Hey, yeah, that's great. But then also when it bumps up to 45 after a bunch of that cold, or they all of a sudden feel more comfortable moving again. Have you seen anything like that? Is that yeah, something
2: you subscribe to? Something I, I think I touched on this in my book, you know, all other whitetails, but I it was uh, when the snow is soft. And so those same conditions when it hasn't been snowing, obviously if it's just 40 all the time, 45 all the time, it's just kind of boring, warm this time of year. But if you just had snow and there's snow on the ground, obviously it got down to the 20s, low 30s at, at the uh, warmest. So then all of a sudden when it's, it's uh warm snow out and it's uh, softer conditions. Boy, it seems like I can remember a lot of really nice times, either tracking deer that we'd shot in the snow or hunting in the soft snow, meaning it's getting packy. Uh, it's a really good, really good condition too. So I think it's relative to what happened before those temperatures.
1: Yep. That makes sense. Okay. So to put a bow on all this, what do you think is the biggest mistake folks make when it comes to late season? Like what are, what are we getting wrong? What's the average hunter doing wrong at this time of the year? Cause I think we've covered a lot of stuff that'll help you do it right. But what's that thing where y- you hear a lot of folks are missing?
2: I think it's the same thing uh, that we fail as hunters all the time is we just do the same thing. And so that, that spot where you saw that monster in the end of October, early November might be a quarter mile from where you should be hunting in the late season. And so late season deer herd up, Uh, they, there's not a lot of food sources. There's not a lot of safe food sources and there's not a lot of good and safe bedding areas. And so they tend to congregate a lot more. And to me, a much smaller percentage of the habitat, whether it's on public or private land actually hold and have the potential to hold decent bucks. So if you do what you did in October, November, meaning you had, like I mentioned earlier, we have a much higher percentage of stands that are in play end of October, November than we do end of November and December, just because of dead areas in the habitat, uh, windswept areas, uh, food sources that are not available, food sources that have been pressured, neighboring bedding areas that have been pressured heavily during gun season. And so um, really need to make sure you follow the deer. And the cool thing about the late season is whether it's fresh rubs with a lot of shavings on top of leaves or snow fresh scrapes that you can, actually, you can actually see. Those are pretty easy to see, let alone lots of uh, fresh pellets and uh, bedding activity. It stands out pretty good. And so yeah. I can remember even the thumb area in the 90s where we would want to hunt a certain woodlot. We just had to do a half mile loop around the woodlot. A lot of times on the road, just even see if there's tracks going that way. If there weren't, we went to the woodlot where their tracks going to, and it might right. be a completely three quarters of a mile difference from where we thought we'd be hunting in the afternoon. So I think, you know, following the deer, being mindful that there's a much smaller percentage of the habitat that's actually going to hold deer. The deer are grouped up. And if you just do that, following the deer and then being careful uh, going in. Um, a lot of people look at it like, kind of like we were talking about in the beginning. We are anxious. Uh, we were stressed. We want to get it. We want to mm-hmm. fill it. We have a tag this time of year and you Press tend on. to uh, mistakes and you tend to push things a little bit more. So if you can identify those deer hot spots this time of year that are always shrinking and if you can be careful and measured how you go in and approach to me, that's where the hope and the potential comes for this time of year. It's really, really high. If you don't spook the deer and you don't get trapped into uh, doing what you did in September, October, and maybe uh, during the rut in November.
1: Yeah. So I think some of the things you just mentioned will fall into this, but but I want to have you reframe or prioritize a little bit. If you had to have a a stone tablet in front of you and you were going to carve into it your three commandments for late season success, this is going to be Jeff Sturgis's late season success. It's going to be here for eternity. Everyone's going to see this when they wake up in the morning on December 27th and they're going to go out for the hunts. The first thing they see, what would be the three things you would carve on that stone tablet? for late season success?
2: Oh, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I, know that, I know the first one would be find the deer, and that seems to be just overly obvious, but it's not considering that only a small percentage of the habitat holds the majority of the deer. And so, again, not getting trapped into that, you know, hunting the same places that you always have. Be mindful of that deer are going to congregate. There's going to be a lot of sign where they're at and really need to gravitate your hunting, even if that means quickly changing where your stand locations are, maybe even sitting in new, brand new stand locations. So That would be step one. And then doing everything you can to protect your hunt, meaning don't spook the deer. And again, that's an overly obvious one, but again, we rush things this time of year, and it's a lot easier, as we talked about, to spook deer this time of year. So if you can find the deer, preserve the movement and then always be mindful that although the afternoon food source movement is king this time of year bucks are replenishing themselves does are congregated they're hitting these major food sources there should be lots of tracks lots of sign the second rut is real and it opens up a whole new morning opportunity to hunt like you would during the rut being mindful of where the deer are located this time of year so You're really looking at the potential for morning stands and afternoon stands, hunting that food source movement, making sure you don't spook out the deer herds that you do find, and then always look for those deer and expect them to be in a lot smaller percentage of the habitat. Um, And and if you're finding those areas consistently, you're going to be on the mature bucks because they'll move a long ways out of the way to find those conditions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do still have one Michigan tag left for the late season. So I'm going to see right. if I can get that transcribed and printed on a poster that I can put in my bedroom so that I remember those three commandments for the next three, four weeks of hunting here. Cause I uh, think that's in
2: general, some... but it's, it's, uh, it's fun this time of year when you can locate those herds of deer, the bigger deer numbers, find all that sign. I used to remember going back to uh, when I was a kid, it's, it's, uh, it's a whole lot of fun. We have a lot of. Used to hunt till early January every single season in Michigan. I could only hunt yeah. the weekends, and I hunted most of them. So a lot of yeah. fond memories this time of year.
1: It's a great time. I, I really do. Uh, you you mentioned it earlier. The fact that it's, it's slightly more relaxed. Actually, if you if you don't feel that pressure that you have to get another tag field, if you can
2: really? kind of
1: go into this and enjoy it in a little bit different way, um, man, it's a lot of fun. So yeah. I think uh, there's a lot there's a lot we can learn from this one, Jeff. I, I appreciate you sharing all this and and re-igniting the fire for me to to continue the the rest of these final weeks in uh what's in strong form
2: i'll, t- I'll tell you real quick on that uh that more relaxed time um when it was the rut i couldn't even consider bringing my uh 20-month-old Jackson out into the woods. Um, It just didn't seem like a realistic opportunity. We're here to go into a food source that's starting 75 yards away, keeping the window of the blind shut, bringing a bunch of snacks, throwing him on a big old camping chair with a blanket and a heater. It just – I mean, the reason I'm doing that is because it's relaxed, because you can. It's not – there is a potential of spooking something, but we're sitting more at long distance with the muzzleloaders, and and, uh, and so – but that doesn't mean I wouldn't go out in the woods if I didn't think there was opportunity. So it doesn't mean you don't have great opportunity at the same time.
1: Yeah. I'm going to be doing the same thing with my two boys over these coming weeks. And uh, I'm, I'm excited. excited. Yeah, they are. They're very excited. So Jeff, uh, real quick, where can folks find your latest Content these days is there anything in particular you would say that they should check out in particular this time of year or anything you want to highlight?
2: Uh, no, we're pretty. I'm pretty methodical on uh, both YouTube and Instagram under Whitetail Habitat Solutions. And the one thing different with YouTube is I think uh, since uh, early October I've probably uploaded maybe 18 uh, shorts. So I've been hitting the shorts more often that shows actually we'll have a hunt coming out about my Pennsylvania hunt, but I put that out on Monday right away. It's just so easy to put a minute uh, video out, uh, kind of a recap and then try to be pretty active on Instagram with uh, the reels. And, and then also getting into the off season, whether it's building bedding areas or scouting, there's a lot of quick tips that I try to do and try to put out, whether it's the short videos or instagram reels put out those more often than pictures and uh, we're very very strict on that and we still haven't haven't missed uh four videos per week pace of our longer videos since uh the summer of 2019 so we keep a really uh, strict pace on that and so we put out 280 a year on that and we'll probably put out uh, right now about that pace of about 100 youtube shorts a year too but we'll see how that Go So between those, all of that, and I try to put out fresh content. In fact, if I create a video for YouTube, I don't put it down in Instagram and vice versa. It's try to get fresh stuff out and fresh ideas and kind of just follow what's going on in the whitetail strategy world, uh, 365. So between those two, our website, we have our yeah. seed, seed company now. Uh, it's all on whitetailhabitatsolutions.com We have a couple other products we might be launching this year. We're in the discussions of those, so we'll see. In the future, on that too, but um, we're just trying so to uh, meet the needs of uh, our audience and what they're looking for. So,
1: if you were going to uh, recommend one of your blends from your food plot seed company for late season, what would be the thing you'd plant if you were looking for late season success?
2: Oh boy! Um, well, the Nebraska blend is built to be a balance of blends where it's not all hard bulbs like purple top turnip, green green globe. And it's not all radish, which is more of an early uh, blend, and it's not all leaf. So it's kind of a blend of in-between. Some of the blends are more slanted towards the big bulbs, purple tops, green globe, that are usually more late season. So we want something that, again, is establishing that pattern of use early, like what the radish is. But then we have our fall power greens, which is more um, a workhorse. We top it with rye um, more a month later after planting. Both those we plant in early August, rye about a month later on the fall power greens, So that's more of a kind of a do it all what someone would plant in the North. And, uh, and then we actually have a Northern Nebraska blend. We're coming out with uh, like a non-ag uh, blend that we're coming out with uh, going into uh, this next season. So some of those green blends, um, a couple awesome. of those different ones would be where I'd recommend them all.
1: Great. Well, uh, you are a busy man, Jeff, you, uh, you are a content machine. So I, I, watch from afar in amazement and admire your work because it's, it's always good. It's always helpful. And, uh, your cadence is crazy. (laughs) So good for you for pumping it out. I can't pump out as much stuff as you do. So thank you.
2: It helps to have a good editor in Dylan. So he, he, I just, I just talk and build them. He just, he edits everything, puts it together. So it's it's yeah, Dylan
1: is, Dylan's great.
2: That's yeah, for
1: sure. Yeah, you work with Dylan too, so yeah, yeah. awesome. Well, thanks you, thank you for this, Jeff. I uh, I really enjoyed yeah. it as always, and always I'm sure a lot of folks will it. too. Well,
2: I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: All right, thank you everyone for tuning in. Hopefully, enjoy that as much as I did. Lots to learn from Jeff as always. So get out there, enjoy this late season, put some of his ideas into action, and I truly believe you can still fill some tags here in these final weeks of the season. So with that all said, thanks for being here. Have fun out there and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam,